Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Manya, who did you talk to this week? Sefi, the curtain falls on the Yiddish version of Fiddler on the Roof this weekend. So I spoke with Max Lukowitz, the director of a documentary about Fiddler on the Roof called Miracle of Miracles, about why this show, no matter what language it's in, has been so immensely popular over the years. And I sat down with Jacob Kornblue, the national politics reporter at Jewish Insider, to talk with him about the recent spate of attacks against the Haredi community in the New York area. It was particularly an interesting conversation because Jacob himself actually is a part of that community. Let's hit the show. With the recent spate of anti-Semitic attacks taking place against Orthodox communities across the New York area, we thought it was important to hear directly from a member of the Hasidic community to better understand what that community is going through. So joining me now right here in our New York studio is Jacob Kornblue, the national politics reporter for The Jewish Insider. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. It's a sad reality that the people and the places that are most identifiably Jewish have long been prime targets for anti-Semites. If we're looking at a trend over time, though, are things worse in Muncie and Crown Heights and Borough Park than they were, say, five years ago? Things are definitely worse because we know crime has always a time where it goes up and down, and you always take caution if it's night, if you go in different neighborhoods. But there was this sense that because we are concise in particular safe neighborhoods Mm. and because we are a community who statistically in the neighborhoods that we live in, it's low crime neighborhoods, not talking about Muncie, New York, KJ, and all these other places where families move out Um, not because they want to be safe and secure, but because of a lack of housing, um, parking, and so on. So there was this sense always that you always have to take caution, and there's always the hate exists, so you could still experience harassment, you can still experience discrimination, uh, drawing of swastikas, vandalism, which is common in a society. Obviously, it shouldn't be so. Mm But until recently, we haven't experienced a period, and especially in the past two, three months, where it's been pretty tough on almost a daily basis, where the hatred towards Jews has become more violent. And if it's a punch in the face, you can deal with it. There's law enforcement to deal with it. But what happens when somebody takes a gun or a knife, like it happened last week, and three weeks ago in Jersey City. So, Jacob, what do you think has changed over the past year or, or even just the past few months? What are the precipitating factors that have led to something like this spike happening? Well, obviously, it's confusing mm-hmm. because we tend to believe that law authorities should protect us and political leaders should be leading the way if it's legislation or prosecution, but also to not only talk the talk, but walk the walk. So 
I'll give you an example. When you talk about increased police presence, for instance, okay, this happens after every violent incident. And I'm talking about violent incident, we're talking about casualties, okay? If it's after Pittsburgh, if it's after Poway, if it's after Jersey City, and this week in Muncie, the mayor, the governor, they all come out, express solidarity. We very much appreciate that. And they pledge, we will hunt down the suspects, we'll prosecute them, and we will increase police presence in the neighborhoods. Thank you very much. Mm. But what happens after four or five days mm. where everything is calm, everybody's back to normal, nobody's out there monitoring if there's increased police presence, nobody's out there to see if the community feels safe already. And based on my knowledge and me being in the community watching where there might be some heightened security measures for a short period, the community is not safe because you don't know what's next. Mm-hmm. Do you feel, I, I guess I can guess the answer after what you just said, but do you feel that state and city governments, do they care about Haredim? They care. I mean, they should care. Yeah. They care. They express solidarity. But when you look at the larger picture where funds are allocated in an annual budget, if it's, as you say, um, heightened security measures, when it comes to affordable housing, when it comes to funding for security measures, but also for education and so on, because we are different, because we have a different lifestyle, because we don't assimilate, because we don't gather in different neighborhoods, because we are all in particular neighborhoods, uh, there's this feeling that the Jews can take care of themselves. Mm. We have patrol, we are a people with a low crime record, so... We don't need to allocate too much funds to them. They are non-public schools, private schools. Take care of yourself. You're not in the public education system. And so I would not say this is discrimination. I would not say that they don't care for the Haredi community. But there's this sense that we put like a father putting a teenage son or daughter into college. Like from now on, you're out of the house. Hmm. You can take care of yourself. You mentioned the patrols that the community has. Can you just tell our listeners just a little bit more? Because I I think it's probably fascinating. What are the security steps and structures that the Haredi community has taken? So patrol is, um, it's called the Shomrim. We have it in Borough Park. Which is just Hebrew for guards. Yeah. It's like 100 members in each particular neighbor, up to 100 members, let's say in Borough Park, Flatbush, Crown Heights. But it's also in these neighborhoods where there's a big Orthodox Jewish population. Mm -hmm. They don't have any guns. They cannot arrest. So all they do is either patrol or when they get called up in times of emergency, if there's a burglary, if there's a uh, somebody gets beaten up or somebody suspicious, they come, stop the guy, call the police and wait to the police to come. We also have uh, security cameras, which was installed a few years ago after the horrific abduction of a small child who got killed by the abductor. And so the community got a grant and we installed Uh, cameras. We were told that these cameras would be obtained by the NYPD and they would have access to it, but it's not live surveillance. Mm -hmm. Nobody's really monitoring the neighborhoods. And so in times of crisis, there's no way for the patrol or these security measures to give an answer to these problems because 
it's only like a band-aid on a large wound. Mm -hmm. It's only particular measures that make the community feel a little safer until law enforcement comes into the picture. Mm -hmm. Now, there are two main distinctions uh, between what happened in the shootings in Pittsburgh and Poway, which uh, which you mentioned before, and what's been happening here in, in New York over the past several months. One is that the perpetrators are not white supremacists. Mm -hmm. They are generally black people. Um, and the other is that the victims are not I'll, I'll be a little crass here. They're not Jews who look like, you know, in air quotes, normal people. They're mm -hmm. Jews who look different. And I think that it's worth spending a little time to talk about each one of those. So first, the perpetrators have been primarily black. Is that violence reflective of the state of relations between the Haredi community and the black community generally? We're not in the 1990s right now. In the 1990s, if you recall the Crown Heights crisis, there's no tension. Mm -hmm. There's dialogue. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you see politicians, you know, from that community work hand in hand with the Orthodox community. You see them coming down to the neighborhood. They express solidarity in times of, of crisis and so on. And I would say, as somebody who is out there, who is not just within the community, there is a lack of understanding from the black community to the orthodox community and vice versa. We don't know their style of life and they don't know our style of life. It's not that we don't care, but there's no bread breaking. There's mm. no, you know, the bar president announced yesterday an initiative where leaders from both communities go break bread by one another, which is a welcome initiative. Uh, but these are dialogues between leaders which you would expect regardless between elected officials and community leaders. But there's no real dialogue between the communities. And I believe that we face the same challenges as a minority group and as people who grow up in these populated areas, that there is need for understanding the challenges that both communities face, each on a different level. Each community faces different discrimination and, uh, you know, Allocation of funds is also a big part of what the city is lacking in terms of the black community. So there's a lot of ways to work together if it's on hate crimes, if it's community organizing, you know, even when it comes to elected officials. There's plenty districts and neighborhoods within New York State that have a large Jewish population and represented by a black representative. And the relations are mutual. It's fine. And so what we need is not only for the leaders to understand that you have a big part in your district, ultra-Orthodox, who would be a little shy, not really looking for the kind of attention that they need, but also for the two communities to come together. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I want to also talk about the fact that Haredi Jews look different. Mm -hmm. And sometimes even in the more modern or more secular Jewish community, there is a sentiment, you know, they're not our kind of Jews. It's different. And people don't get overly concerned about the fact that Haredim in many ways are on the front lines. What does the community think about that? You know, what does the Haredi community think about other Jews? Are, are your people worried that you've been forgotten? It's not forgotten. Obviously, look, I'm a Hasidic Jew, but I'm a journalist and I dress differently. I walk in the street differently. I don't have the garbs on a daily basis. And so for me, if I walk in Manhattan at 12 a.m., I'm pretty safe because we are a safe city. 
but the same person who could be my brother or cousin, if he wears the garb and he walks in the streets of Manhattan or even in Brooklyn, as we see, 12 a.m., he could be targeted. Mm. And so I don't think that the tension is between secular Jews and more religious Jews. I don't think that religious Jews think that secular Jews don't care about religious Jews because they look different and they practice the religion rather than just having it based on a faith or religion. But there's lacking in the conversation the understanding of what the community is and the challenges they face, and the discrimination they face. A Haredi Jew who is talented, who has a talent, but he didn't graduate from college because of the education system, because he grew up in a normal household, went to yeshiva, and married at the age of 18. A very talented guy, but he didn't go through the regular system. And he can write, he can sing, he can paint, art, anything, he gets discriminated because he didn't pass through the regular channels. And so they would not go out on the street and protest Jewish lives matter, Hasidic lives matter. But there are some challenges where the broader community does not understand that Haredi Jews are more vulnerable, not only because they could be targeted for being visibly Jewish, but also face discrimination because they look different. Mm -hmm. One thing that AJC is doing that I want all of our listeners to know about is on this coming Monday, January 6th, we're calling for a day of Jewish pride. Mm -hmm. We're encouraging all Jewish people to wear a kippah or wear a Magen David around their neck or wear a shirt with Hebrew writing to stand with those people who are identifiably Jewish every single day of their lives on this one day, Monday, January 6th coming up. We're encouraging all people to do that, to take pictures of themselves looking where wearing something that makes them identifiably Jewish to post it to social media with the hashtag Jewish and proud. So everyone, uh, I hope that all of our listeners here on People of the Pod will take part. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing these important perspectives with us today. It's my pleasure. Fiddler on the Roof, the tale of a Jewish milkman in the early 20th century who wants to find a good Jewish husband for his three oldest daughters before the Russians, in violent pogroms, expel him and his neighbors from their village, has all the makings of a great Broadway musical, right? Well, not exactly. So why was Fiddler on the Roof such a hit? That is what filmmaker Max Lukowitz set out to answer in his documentary, Miracle of Miracles. Max joins me today to talk about what has drawn him to the show and what he learned in the making of the film. Max, welcome. Hi, welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, Max, as some of our listeners might remember, I recently interviewed for this podcast the musical director and the actor who was cast as Tevya in the Yiddish version of Fiddler on the Roof, which has really caught fire in its off-Broadway run. And they told me that they actually had talked to you for the documentary. I'm just curious from your perspective and based on what you learned, first of all, why has the Yiddish version caught fire? But why have all of the versions, all of the revivals of this musical caught fire over the years? Well, the story that we tried to develop was why does great art survive and people keep coming back to it over and over again? It's over 50 years old. And the themes that Fiddler on the Roof presents to those who view it 
connects to them in a special way, and it's very universal. So it's interesting. I, I saw, you know, nuns crying in the show on Broadway. You know, all over the world, in Japan and different um, locations around the world, where people connect to family, people connect to xenophobia and racism and women's rights. And it seems like it never goes away because people relate to all the elements. And I think that's what people keep coming back. And in a time now where everything going on, the impeachment, and you just mentioned the, the fighting in Gaza, you know, we keep fighting as people and all that. But this is a way to connect to something that's of substance. Yeah. I'm curious. So this debuted in 1964. What social debates, political debates were going on that really shaped how this musical was received by audiences? Um, It's interesting. Of course, our documentary really focuses on three time periods. One is 1905 when Sholem Aleichem wrote the original stories Mm -hmm. and where Fiddler on the Roof takes place, or Tevye and his daughters take place in the Pale of Settlements in Eastern Europe. 64 was the time when the Vietnam War was beginning, where women's rights were just exploding, where civil rights and the fight, three civil rights workers, two of them being Jewish, one being African-American, were murdered in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. It was time in the 60s where there was so much turmoil and so much explosive stuff happening around the world. I think when they started to write it, they didn't think that it would have such a texture and such a layered um, story, but they thought it would be um, fun to do. As it expanded, as we did with the film, we discovered that there are so many layers that connect to people. So 64 was, uh, the world was in turmoil. Mm -hmm. Um, And the 67 war started, and um, Russians invading Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia, you can go on and on and on and on. Yeah. Martin Luther King being assassinated. Yeah. So what about the show helped audiences process that history going on around them? I think the major themes, for example, you take each song, uh, you take Matchmaker, Matchmaker, which is but the three daughters trying to find their ground beneath them and saying, no, this is not the way I want to live my life. Um, Betty Friedan wrote The Feminine Mystique a year ago. It was a huge success. And, and uh, so that's one story. Then you have, you know, Anna Tefka, and you have the whole idea of traditions breaking and traditions rebuilding themselves and all that. Mm-hmm. I think it touched the nerve with everybody who saw it. And it wasn't just in America. It was all over the world. I mean, people were watching it. There's a famous story of, it playing in Japan and the Japanese producer asking Joe Stein, do people in America understand the show? And he, he says, yes, of course. Why do you ask? He says, because it's so Japanese. It's remarkable how people relate to it. And um, we filmed it in all different places around the world, in, uh, in the Ukraine and in Thailand and young kids and older people. And, and they all connect to it. Mm-hmm. Like Joe Gray in our opening says, and they all think it's about them. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and I will confess, the first time I saw Fiddler on the Roof, and I, I made this confession uh, when I interviewed Stephen Skybell and Zalman Milatek recently, the first time I saw it was in Yiddish. And I still cried and I still related because it really was my family's story on stage. It was 
my grandfather insisting that his children marry Jewish spouses and boycotting the weddings of those who didn't. And, you know, my grandfather's parents came to the United States from Russia to escape the pogroms. I mean, it was my life right there up on stage. But I did have to wonder, you know, this was a packed theater. Yeah. Was it was it the life story, the ancestry of everyone around me? But also, how do non-Jews relate to this story? Well, I always think about the great filmmakers from around the world, such as Ray in India, talking about a small village in India, or Kurosawa, or Oshima in Japan, or, you know, great filmmakers in Russia. They speak in different languages, and yet we relate to it. We just read the subtitles. Mm-hmm. And we say, wow, I connect to it. I understand what it's like living in, in this village in India. Um, so great art. I mean, Shakespeare is played all over the world in different languages. Yeah. I think people connect to it. I speak Yiddish, uh, funny enough, I speak fluently, but a lot of the words that I heard in the seeing Fiddler in Yiddish connected to me because I had heard them in my home. Uh-huh. So that's a common sort of theme you connect to. You say, oh, I feel very comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you felt that way. I don't know if you speak Yiddish or at all and all that, but... Quite the contrary. I mean, that's what was so amazing is that, I, no, I did not hear Yiddish growing up. Um, I grew up in North Carolina and Texas, so there was no Yiddish <laughs> spoken around me. But yet, I completely related. It was the strangest phenomenon. <laughs> the strangest. Well, Stephen Skybell is from Texas, Jewish boy Yes, from he Texas. is. He is. Yeah. He's a great Tevye. He's one of the best Tevyes really I've was, ever seen. Really was amazing. Well, so also tell me, you know, I, I asked you earlier about the political and social debates that have shaped this show. What about the marriage debate? Has that played a role in people's interpretation and viewing of this show? When I, and when I say marriage debate, I'm talking interfaith marriage, same-sex marriage, the variety of marriage debates that are out there. Did you encounter that? when you were making the film? Yes, of course. Interestingly enough, I spoke to somebody who had just seen the British uh, version of the of Fiddler on the Roof, and she's an Indian woman from, I think, Mumbai, and she was disowned by her family. I met her after the show, and she was disowned by her family in Mumbai because she had married a young Englishman, and um, they wouldn't accept that. Mm. It's always happening because the parents don't want you to have something different than they did. They don't approve. They don't. Um, it, it's it's a very very common thing. Intermarriage is a huge and powerful theme that has affected the Jewish community in America for the last you know fifty, sixty, seventy years. Mm-hmm. You know, how could you marry somebody who's out of the faith or not Jewish? Forget about 1905. Right. <laughs> but it's eased off a little bit today. I mean, there's been, you know, interracial marriages, which, you know, if it used to be 20 years ago or 30 years ago. You walked down the street, who was, uh, you were white and they were African-American. And mm-hmm. They would get terrible looks from people. I mean, people can be very cruel and not forgiving and, and all. They don't understand how... Um, relationships happen in their own organic way by people coming together and and, uh, connecting. So it's a very, very powerful point. And I I was very mad at Tevye when I first saw the show. (laughs) Right. I said, how could he let go? I have a couple of daughters. And I said, 
I would never give up on my daughters. I don't care if they, you know, they fell in love with a, you know, a car. <laughs> They're my daughters. I love them. But what I didn't expect is how complicated or complex Tevia was. As I mean, he didn't gladly do it. He loved his daughters very much. And it was very, at least the version I saw, Stephen Skybell portrayed Tevia as really brokenhearted to give up his daughter. And I was not expecting that. Those were not the stories I was raised on when it came to Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> I was raised to be angry with Tevia, too. <laughs> well, I know it's funny because, first of all, you must realize that the original stories by Sean Malekum, Tevia and his daughters, in 1905, there was a different sort of situation. If you intermarried, as Alyssa Solomon says in our film, she says, this wasn't just intermarriage. You left the community. Mm -hmm. You were disconnected to the community. You were an apostate. And because of that, you know, it, it's hard for people to understand that what happened in 1905, I mean, if you were gay in 1905 in New York City, what kind of tough life would you have? Right, right. So much has changed since the debut uh, or since the introduction of Fiddler uh, as a story and its, and, and its debut. It's, yeah, it's still changing. It's still trying to find its way as we as human beings try to uh, discover what the right way to be is. Um, and it's, we seem to never learn. seems like we never learn. We just keep going after each other in a... <laughs> in a very, very rough way. But uh, the intermarriage part is very, very important. But also the, the fact that women's rights, I mean, the role of the woman has changed completely mm -hmm. to what it was in 64 and what it was in 1905. And it's a continuous struggle. Yeah. You guys have to teach us men how to behave. <laughs> well, um, well, Fiddler definitely does a, a wonderful job of kind of capturing that evolution and that constant need for change. And uh, your film, Miracle of Miracles, captures that as well. Max Lukowitz, thank you so much for joining us on the show to talk about this. My pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk, and we're joined this week at our Shabbat Table by Raphael Aren, diplomatic correspondent for the Times of Israel. Raphael, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat Table this weekend, what will you be talking about? Hi, Sefi. Hi, Manya. I think I'm going to be talking about anti-Semitism on my Shabbat Table this week. Unfortunately, it was one of the defining stories of the last couple of years, and I'm afraid it's going to be with us in the coming decade as well. Exactly 60 years ago, two young men spray-painted swastikas and anti-Jewish slogans on the walls of the synagogue of Cologne, Germany. It was the first act of anti-Semitic vandalism in post-war Germany, and it happens to be exactly on the Shabbat Bar Mitzvah of my dad. I spoke with him about this a few days ago, and he recalls exactly how it felt as a young German Jew coming to synagogue and see swastikas and anti-Jewish slogans on the walls of the synagogue. Before that, he told me, the doors of the synagogue actually were open. And after that ugly act of vandalism, the German Jewish community decided it has to secure itself. And from that day on, you need to undergo severe security checks before you can enter any Jewish institution in Germany. Of course, uh, in recent years, this is part and parcel of European Jewish life. Now, Jews in America are not used to that, or at least haven't been for the last couple of years. 
But unfortunately, the last couple of years, and I want to say even the last couple of months and weeks, have brought about a paradigm shift when it comes to anti-Semitism in the United States. Just a few years ago, a Jew in America could walk around freely, wearing his kippah, not having to worry about a thing. Now that is, unfortunately, changing. Nothing is as it used to be. And when American Jews used to have the luxury to think about saving Soviet Jewry, and a few decades later, helping French Jews escape anti-Semitism at home, now, unfortunately, we're in a situation where we're all in the same boat. And we all have to undergo security checks before we enter Jewish houses of worship and Jewish institutions, even in America. That's a really important reflection to share, Raphael. And, you know, we at AJC, because of our presence on both sides of the Atlantic, have long been talking about the importance of focusing on anti-Semitism in Europe and making sure that our community here in the U.S. doesn't suffer the same fate. Manya, what are you going to be talking about this weekend? So, Sefi, we are going to be talking about Jewish and proud. My family is Jewish. We are very proud, without a doubt. But the idea of putting that on display for all the world to see, frankly, makes me nervous. I was raised to never wear anything or do anything that advertises my Judaism. I recall my parents warning me, especially when I flew, to never wear a Star of David or anything else that might lead a terrorist to single me out. These are the memories I have about my childhood. And even when it wasn't a question of safety, it was a matter of turning off my Christian friends who had no idea what Jews really believed, and I wasn't going to put myself in the position of teaching them. This is, of course, why I became a religion reporter years later, <laughs> uh, so that I could educate the world and so that children like me wouldn't have to hide their Judaism. But then it was a question of making sure readers trusted me not to have a bias for one religious tradition over another. Mm. So once again, I kept my Judaism to myself. So these are hard habits to break. On Sunday, when people were posting their flaming menorahs on social media, I took a photo of my beautiful children and my beautiful husband, their faces aglow right before our three menorahs. It was like a bonfire in the middle of our dining room. And I went to post it on Facebook, and I stopped myself. And I sat there, and I stared at the computer, and I couldn't bring myself to do it. I didn't necessarily want everybody in the Facebook world to know that I was Jewish. Not yet. So at our Shabbat table, we will be talking about the AJC initiative on Monday, hashtag Jewish and Proud. It's a call for everyone across the Jewish spectrum to display their Judaism in some way, wear a piece of jewelry, a T-shirt, a kippah, uh, or hold a sign and take a picture and post it on social media with the hashtag Jewish and Proud. I need to figure out how I'm most comfortable displaying my Judaism and my Jewish pride, because indeed I am proud to be Jewish. Sefi? That's beautiful, Manya. And it's so interesting to think about how two Jews in the same country can have such different upbringings. You know, I was, I think I was eight years old when I decided that I was going to wear a kippah all day uh, growing up in suburban New Jersey. And I guess suburban New Jersey is different from suburban Texas in terms of the way people um, come to grips with, with how to be publicly Jewish like you and, and like you, Raphael. I'll be talking about anti-Semitism at my Shabbat table this weekend. I'm sure. How could we talk about anything other than the recent spate of attacks that Jews in our own city have faced. I recently saw a video circulating on Twitter. At last count, it's been watched about three quarters of a million times, and we'll link to it in our show notes because you should all watch it. In just over two minutes, the video flits through clips of 20 different attacks against Jews in Brooklyn. Jews are punched and kicked. They are slammed into walls. Their hats are beaten off their heads. They are run over with cars and bludgeoned with bricks. Sometimes the perpetrators seem really into it. 
laying into their Jewish victims with fury and malice, and other attacks seem to be quick hit and runs, where the attacker resolves to punch a Jew and then scamper away. The music behind the video is utterly haunting. It is a song performed in a classical Hasidic style, featuring a line from a prayer called Tachanun. Jews around the world say this line every Monday and Thursday in their morning prayers. Look down from heaven and see how we are ridiculed among the nations of the world. We are thought of as sheep led to the slaughter, to be killed, destroyed, beaten, and humiliated. But despite this, we have not forgotten your holy name. Please do not forget us. The refrain of the song is on that phrase, we have not forgotten your holy name. This song is the perfect soundtrack for this video because these words written 2,000 years ago remain perfectly true today. Still, anti-Semitism persists. Still, Jewish blood is worth too little to too many. And yet still, despite it all, we remain united and proud, and we have not forgotten what makes us Jews. At my Shabbat table, we'll probably talk about how, as of Thursday morning, there have already been two anti-Semitic attacks in New York City in 2020. But we'll also talk about how New Yorkers will march across the Brooklyn Bridge to protest anti-Semitism on Sunday at 11 a.m., And we'll talk about AJC's hashtag Jewish and Proud Day on Monday, when Jews of all persuasions and denominations across the U.S. will be wearing something to make themselves identifiably Jewish and to send the message that no one could ever possibly beat our Jewish pride out of us. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 